I'm Rebecca Rothstein, and sitting in today is my co-host, Kim Garner. We'd like to welcome you to Say It Forward. Each week, we'll be doing one of my favorite things to do, and that's interviewing interesting people with out-of-the-ordinary life stories. They're all people who took a different path in life. Some never imagined the heights they would achieve, and others, well, they turned their childhood dreams into reality. So let's begin. Joining me today is Dr. Michael Gervais. Michael is a high-performance psychologist working in the trenches of high-stakes environments. His clients are some of the best and most elite people in the world. They include internationally acclaimed artists, musicians, world record holders, Olympians, Fortune 100 CEOs, and MVPs from almost every major sport. He is a successful entrepreneur, a published author, a highly regarded speaker on optimal human performance. He has been featured many times in both print and on television. Michael is the co-founder of Compete to Create, which is a digital platform business that helps people become their best through a process that he calls mindset training. He is the host of his own very successful podcast, Finding Mastery, where he takes us inside the rugged and high-stakes environments of those who are on the path to mastery, decoding their journeys to success. Please help me welcome Dr. Michael Gervais to Say It Forward. Let's start at the beginning. I'd like to know where you were born, where you grew up, and a little bit about your family. Perfect. So I grabbed some roots in Virginia. So Warrington, Virginia is a, is a small town, and uh, I've been back. It's not as small as it once was. To paint the picture, my parents moved from the city, and, and my dad was from New York. Uh, my mom was from Boston. They moved from the city and then came out to find a place that was away, and much of a like a hippie-timed event for them. And it was my sister, my younger sister, myself, my mom, and my dad, and we were on acres and acres of land. And we didn't have running water that you know in the in the winter because it would freeze over. The pipes would freeze over. Uh, I had to chop wood at the age of eight, so there was some kind of re- it was rugged, you know. So, and I don't when I say that. I don't want to sound like it was like hard. It was just living in farm-based conditions, but there was no, I don't know, it wasn't like a livestock farm. It was but what just was out. the impetus to that? Why did your father do that? Yeah, they want, he, he wanted a different way. And as I've come to learn now is that their motivation was to get out of the rat race and to just build a family. And that was the idea. Like they wanted to get out of the hustle bustle of the city and get to, connected to some roots. And so I feel like I grabbed some roots on the farm and then um, my dad re-entered into the corporate world and eventually moved to the West Coast. So it was third or fourth grade, I think it was fourth grade that we moved to California. And then, um, then you know, it was a whole different experience. It was like the, the hippie kid from the farm moving into the city. And so that was an early t- experience for me. How long did that experience last for? With the, the trying to figure it, I'm still trying to figure it out, but <laughs> no, I, I love it. Yeah, the living in Virginia experience. Yeah, so that was from those are those are the formative early years up until about fourth grade. So is that twelve? Wow. 10, somewhere in there. Somewhere in that range. Yeah. And was your dad working at that time, or basically let's just go run a farm? Yeah. No. It, and. If it was running a farm, it would be like mowing lawn. Like there was, you know, we had a couple horses and chickens and, you know, so it wasn't like this A big, working farm. Yeah, no, yeah. no, no. It was like just a, a place to build a home and a family, you know, is what it was. So, yes, he was around a lot working and building the house up and um, it was a small little house that they, they, they put together. And, yes, he had a job. Now, mind you, this is me looking back as an adult to my child years 
what did he do? It, I didn't, I didn't really know. He, he, he'd leave every once in a while and come back. And, you know, so like, but he worked in the, in the corporate world and it was, I think the company was, oh gosh, Frieden Alcatel. Not that that matters now, but so he was in a sales position. Hmm. What did your mom do? She did not work. She, she was working inside the family. What an interesting experience. Do you remember it? Mm-hmm. Oh, do you yeah. remember it with, with fondness? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. It was a beautifully safe environment, you know, that was like um, I had to figure out how to get home before the lights, before the sun went down because there was no street lights. It was dirt roads. Um, Where was I, school? Yeah, school was somewhere far. <laughs> like, the, you know, a bus came by and it was like a, wow. it was a long, it was a long trip to get to school. Um, I've got a fun story that I remember about school, but the finish this story is that, you know, I, looking back, I was playing in the creek. That's what I was doing. And so I, by myself as a little kid, like a young kid, I remember like being six, seven, eight, playing in this little running creek, no parents around in the middle of the forest, you know, kind of this area, the foothills of the Blue Mountains in Virginia. And I had to figure out a lot of stuff. I had to figure out nature. I had to figure out timing of um, you know, when the sun goes down, when it comes up and don't be caught when it's dark because it's a long way back to home. You know, we had literally had a triangle, you know, like the dinner bell triangle thing. And that was, you know, like if we got too come late, on the home. Bell, yeah, come on <laughs> home. So, um, I've got, so that I've got really fond memories. I've got hard memories there as well. You know, working hard. I've got emotionally wonderful memories and emotionally difficult memories. Um, from, did you have from friends? Going, yeah, I had friends. Yeah. Did they come to visit you? No. It's too far out. It's too far. Yeah. And so there was, I, we had our neighbor who was maybe a quarter mile away and um, they were a little bit older. So we'd on the weekends play with them. Now I was part of a soccer team. So we go and do some soccer. There was, there was some stick and ball type of sport, but I never fit in in stick and ball sport. And here I am in the professional <laughs> you know, environment of sport psychology, you know, and like, but I never fit in in stick and ball. And there's a real... There's a real part of my development why that's important, I think. That's such an interesting story. Were you close to your sister? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean you only had your sister. Yeah, right, for sure. Yeah. yeah and we're close. And, you know, I, I, if when I look back, I had a way about myself that I appreciated the off-access, non-traditional, buck the system, even as a young kid. Like, I wasn't interested in doing what other kids were doing. I had no idea what they were doing. And... I had some pent up uh, aggressiveness as well. Where'd that come from? You know, there's a longer story there, but it was from not knowing um, my, my, from my dad when he's coming back, when he's going like that mm-hmm. kind of unknown. Mm-hmm. And then my mom, who is wonderful woman who had more of a codependent approach to life. And so my dad had more of a rip and run approach to life. So they're perfect for each other, you know, <laughs> but Obviously. As a, can, can, yeah, can, can you relate though? In some ways, like one, one is a beautiful caretaker. That's not quite giving the entire truth of how things are working. And the other one's like running full steam, you know, in many directions and both of their moral characters intact and, and high, um, but their life, the, the way that they communicate to their to the, each other and to their children is different than I'm doing it now. So there was a there was me not knowing, right? So super grounded and at the same time not knowing the adult world at all. What would you say the greatest thing from growing up on a farm so remotely for you as a kid? Nature. The greatest thing, nature, yeah. and then the worst the worst part of that. Yeah, I don't think that there's anything bad for me when I look back. It was being connected to nature, nature. that was big time, right? And so it's one of the greatest teachers. 
And this is why, like kind of threading a few things together, this is why stick and ball experiences for me early on didn't work because a inquisitive, off-axis thinking little kid, I didn't know if what this adult coach was saying to me was to help me get better or was it like – it just didn't make sense. So it's not that I didn't trust adults. That wasn't the case. But it was – the feedback wasn't as crisp as Mother Nature was. So if you make a mistake in Mother Nature, there's consequences. Were there other sports in your life at that time? Yeah, early on. So it was soccer. It was um, a little bit of kind of – you call it gymnastics, more like tumbling type stuff just mm-hmm. for proprioception think I think is what that was about. At school? Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. It was like a, a club experience. Mm-hmm. and But I was not good at it, you know. And then there was a lot of outdoor-based stuff. So whatever you can fill in the blanks in your imagination doing outside on a farm-based area with four seasons, that was part of it. Then coming to the city, it, I tried to re-enter back in – this is now California. I tried to re-enter back into traditional sports. I tried to pick up where I left off and I didn't – I still didn't like it. You were around 10 now. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And so, so – but I didn't like it. I didn't like how it felt. And so I became quickly attracted to action sports, BMX, motocross, skateboarding. Uh, eventually surfing was the one that took off for me. So all the things that had... Solo sports, all of them were solo sports. Yeah, there wasn't... It was not team um, oriented. Right. And the consequences were physical harm, not uh, letting someone down or being embarrassed or not being... Like it was all not, not all that social kind of weirdness that gets in the way. Because I think it was already overburdened by it for for some reasons. Now you have a son, mm-hmm. right? Does he does he do sports now? How old is he? He's nine, and you know we're still watching to see what he's interested in. And our job right now is really just to give him as many opportunities to explore. Mm-hmm. And so there's two thoughts that I've come to appreciate about development. One is formal instruction, and the other is guided discovery. And so formal instruction is like, okay, let's say basketball, for example, lock your elbow in, snap your wrist, leave your arm at one o'clock, you know, and the ball will rotate a certain way. And that's the best chance to get it into the hoop. Now do that 10,000 times, do that, do that a hundred times, do do it again, do it again, do it again. So that's formal instruction and the path of formal instruction, people, not just kids will get better faster. So that's, that is the American route of education. And sport development, for sure. With Even being the better being the goal. Being better being the goal. Faster. As fast as you possibly can. The other approach is called guided discovery. Right? So more of a discovery approach where you would just say to a kid, let's use, let's use basketball. I'll go back to that. Hey, um, put the ball in the hole. And put the ball in the basket. And then, great. What'd you learn? Okay, do it again. And they're figuring out the most effective way. So it might be rotating it in different ways. It might be using two hands, one hand. Doesn't Who knows? What ends up happening for people is that they learn how to do all the different variations of getting a ball in the hole. So that, that is the path of mastery more than it is the, the path of expertise. So the former is about becoming an expert quickly. And the other is about seeing as many different perspectives and angles and creatively exploring to figure out what is right. And so that actually helps create the internal tuning fork more than it does uh, the, the grooving of the expert. So back to my son, we're just giving him as many opportunities and guided discoveries he possibly can mm-hmm. have. 
and seeing what he has a natural mastery in your home. Yeah, well, you know, pastor, like at least like the idea of exploring as opposed to like getting better right now. Yeah. Like, you know, it's nine, please. Your work includes cultivating mindfulness and tuning in self-awareness training. Was that part of your life growing up? So I've got a very clear hindsight view on my development of spirit and spoon-fed as a Christian Catholic and understood my parents were really involved in in the local church. So I was around it, in it, came to understand it from a child's point of view and then didn't question much of it, got into high school, still was involved in the church, started to question as we're supposed to do. Uh, so I had some concerns about the stories that I was told and the the path that, that formal religion offers. And then eventually found myself in a Jesuit-based university. And so Jesuits are like, they are the academic scholars in the Christian, uh, in Christianity, and they are radical. They're radical thinkers. So had us question, this is at Loyola Marymount University, had us question everything about religion to harden us, to say, you have to make an informed choice as an adult. You have to know the ugly part of it. You have to know the wonderful part of it so you can make an adult decision about religion. That was an important Mm. path for me. And so there was an in and an out and in and an out trying to sort out like, are these fairy tales or are they real stories? And if they're real stories, what do they mean? Am I supposed to take this story of you know, Jesus breaking the bread for enough food to be the fish and bread for people to be fed, thousands of people to be fed? Or is that just the idea that he was trying to share? If we share appropriately, we can all be fed, you know, or did he do a miracle? <laughs> okay. So that's trying to sort out the stories that are beautiful in, in all of the inspired texts. And then I took a course, not a course, but I took a deep dive in all 11 world religions. And because I wanted to understand different perspectives. And so that opened up some incredible thinking. I don't know if you've had the chance to study, you know, the Quran, had study Zoroastrianism. You know, there's 11 world religions, Jainism, Sikhism, mm-hmm. you know, and beautiful, amazing, insightful, deep, rich, principle-based stories about how humans work, the world works, the cosmos works. Okay, so on that journey, it was my senior year in high school, and my mom pulled me aside and said, son, we tried. No one in my family went to school. They didn't graduate high school. I'm sorry. They didn't graduate college. They didn't go to college. Son, we tried. We didn't know how to do this. You got a zero on your PSAT. You got a zero on your SAT. So you've got a choice now. You've either got to go to community college or get a job and move out. Your choice. But you are not going to stay here and keep surfing anymore. I was 17. So good for them, right? Because if it was left to me, my vision was I was going to stay at home, live under my parents' roof and surf the world. And I was, I was definitely going down that path with very low standards. <laughs> the, the actual vision was my then girlfriend, now wife, was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> like, like plywood, this was the vision. Plywood is my kitchen table and that I would find in a scrap wherever part of the world I was in. We'd post up and have, what's that kind of plastic vinyl-y um, uh, tablecloth? And I'd sit on milk crates. <laughs> and so milk crate was, was, was going to be my living room you know, and, and kitchen area. But I was going to be on the coast in the most exotic, beautiful places in the world, surfing the something I really loved. So low standards, <laughs> definitely an explorer. Well, you had a roof over your head though. So. Maybe. <laughs> Possibly. Maybe. <laughs> One of my trips right after high school down in Costa Rica was, yeah, we didn't have a house for a while. And so we were just, we we're kind of backpacking, figuring out like, and we didn't have a roof and it was it's wow. pretty rugged back in, what was that, 80, 
89, I graduated. So low standards, but big idea about how I wanted to govern my life. Beautiful girlfriend, now wife, says to me, you can do more. (laughs) (laughs) The little voice. You can do more. You can do more than that. You know, so... So anyways, get back to spirit is that I go and I said, junior college, that's for losers. I'm not going to junior college. I didn't have any options. Like you I wasn't zero gonna, on your PSA. Zero. Yeah. I, I was not going to go to get a job. And like, I had three jobs, by the way, I was a gas station uh, attendant. I was managing a surf shop. And um, what was the third one? I had? I think it was like a paper route. It was like some sort of like silly little cash So you had money. pocket money. Barely. Yeah. Yeah. Enough for gas. And, and you worked movies. hard. Oh, yeah. I, I like how it feels to put in labor, if you will. But now I've come to realize that if I'm going to work hard, I, I want to do things that I love doing, you know. And so what ended up happening is I chose to go to college because this college in particular is a junior college happened to be right above a world class surf break in Palos Verdes, California. That's why you picked that school. That's why I picked the school. So I knew that I could go to school and surf. And I thought I was just going to have a 13th and maybe 14th year, and I was going to stay at home, surf, and kind of go to school. Second semester of school, theologian, philosopher, and psychologist, Dr. Zanka Perkins and Cusio. What's up, guys? They saw me coming. I tested into remedial math, remedial English, not because I was stupid, because I didn't know how to study. So they saw me coming, this kid that was like bouncing around, trying to figure out life, and curious, wide open, and had a spirit. So I think they saw this young kid coming, and they said, hey, let me show you something. You know, not, not in a weird way. Let me show you something. And what they showed me was how the world of the invisible started to look from a philosophical theologian and psychological principle-based approach. No one from that point forward had to ask me to read another book. It was like, this is amazing. What do you, how the do these The world of the invisible. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. yeah. And I think we're all trending in that space every day. You have an invisible world inside mm-hmm. your head about how you think and how you relate to yourself other people that you talk to have that same invisible world. You can't see thoughts. You don't know where they start, where they go, how much they weigh. We don't know. We don't know the first thing about thoughts. We're not sophisticated yet as a science community to know. So you live in the invisible world more than you live in the concrete world. It's this funny little interface that takes place. And then the relationship between the three of us right now, that's invisible too. We're just looking at our physical shells, but there's so much more. There's so much, like there's so much other stuff that's happening that we can't see. So long story short, I fell in love with how complicatedly beautiful the inner experience is for the human condition. No one had to ask me to read another book, you know, click off all the boxes, summa cum laude, magna cum laude, and every stop, master's degree, PhD. I'm not bragging about it. It's an, it's a marker that I love the studying. I don't care what anyone thinks about grade point. What is that? I got a zero on my SAT. I went surfing instead of, cause I wasn't on fire about anything. So how does it all map together? Coming back to your conversation of spirit. I raise my hand in one of the classes and I think I'm like, okay, well, the Buddha says, you know, he's got the eight path fold and he's got these principles and Jesus got, ten, you know, the Bible has 10 commandments and really there's one principle, love people. Okay. All right. Confucius says, okay, here's the right Zoroastrianism and, and uh, Taoism are talking about the path and wait a minute. What if we took principle one, two, and three from this religion and four, five, and six from, and we cobbled it together? And I was on fire. Like I got lost in that thought and I'm standing up and I don't care that there's any other academic people in the, in the, I'm challenging the professor. He says, he says, Gervais, do you think you're the first person that had that idea? I said, well, it seems, sure seems like it. And then he says, well, how about this? Do you think that you're smarter than Buddha, Jesus, Confucius? Do you think you're smarter than all of them put together? I said, oh, good idea. He says, why don't you just pick one? Why don't you really understand the nuances of one? 
So therein is was a kernel and a seed of me being fascinated by the nuances of people that are masterful, right? And it doesn't matter if it's an art, if it's a spiritual leader, a political leader, it doesn't matter if it's a business, it doesn't matter if it's in the, in the business world. What are the nuances once people have a full command of ideas and actions? What are those nuances? And how does, how does a person come to understand those nuances? So that's, it took off. Very serendipitous, mm-hmm. yeah. really. Yeah, so you know, people talk about having a vision for their Flip life. that switch, light that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's all looking back, right? That is looking. And this was a kid. I was 18 probably at the time. I had incredible anxiety. Like I I couldn't keep it together very, very well. I was waking up in the morning because there was so much happening in my life. There was a relationship, you know, with my girlfriend that was intense. I wasn't surfing as much as I wanted to. I'm learning more than I ever learned before, trying to figure out how to have study habits, figuring out how this barely entry into adulthood process is taking place. I'm unequipped really but I have good moral compass and a high work ethic and I'm overloaded. So I'd wake up in the morning brushing my teeth and I'd notice my hands were shaking. So I need this. I need to study how the mind works. As a young kid, full circle back to sport, surfing, there's two types of surfing. There is free surfing where it's just the creative expression and there's competitive surfing where you're being judged. Free surfing, wonderful experience for me. You know, one, one of the, one of the crew, if you will, in Southern California for surfing, as soon as competitive surfing happened and there was judges and people watching, I was a shell of myself. I could not think properly. I couldn't feel my body. I couldn't access my craft. So, you know, when people talk about choking, yeah. so, so there's a hierarchy, if you will, of performance, choking, micro choking, performing, performing under pressure, thriving under pressure. And there's one that people don't talk about, which is dissolving pressure. That is possible. When you understand the inner experience, that is possible to dissolve pressure. I was micro-choking on a regular basis, but here's the insight. What does choking mean? My mind was constricting in such a way, and I bet you guys can nod your head to, you've experienced this as well. When your mind constricts your access to your craft, what is your craft? Thinking clearly probably you know, in your business line. And so for athletes, it's being able to move eloquently on time in environments where, you know, the mistakes are costly. So I couldn't access my craft. And so that, that's, come, that's what I've come to full circle looking back. It started as a 15-year-old kid being like discombobulated until one day a surfer paddles by me, an, an older gentleman. I'm in a heat, beautiful conditions, glassy out. The, the ocean's just beautiful, glassy. It's about eight o'clock in the morning, crisp, head-high surf, and I'm a mess out in the water in this competitive heat. And a Good little competitor, older gentleman paddles by me and he says, Gervais, you got to stop worrying. I see, he says, I see you surfing here every day. You got to stop worrying about what could go wrong. The idea is simple. How? How do we, how, as a 15 year old, I have no idea what that means, but he was right. I was thinking about all the things that could go wrong. How? So that's- So your whole life journey for your career wise has been to answer that question as much for yourself as to help other people. For sure. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think of it this way. It's not like I'm on a narcissistic approach to figure things out from just me, but I feel the pain as much as anyone else about what it feels like to not be attuned to what is true. And so I felt that pain too much. And so I'm not going to look for a shortcut, right? Because that those don't work. <laughs> You know, and so what is what is that path to have better attunement, to better alignment? Alignment of what? My thoughts, my words, and my actions in environments that matter. And when I get those things lined up, and that's possible for anybody, by the way. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. You know, 
but it requires real work. Going back to religion for a second, my observations of what you just said is that to know all of those things and to have heard all of those people and to have read all of their points of view, was there any similarity in that when you look back at the readings and the teachings? Yeah, yeah. There are, and there are far better scholars at this conversation than me. So this is me. I, I want to make sure I'm painting an accurate picture. I'm fascinated by it, but there are brighter minds. Um, Varun Soni, for example, was on Finding Mastery, and he is the first Hindu that is the head chaplain at a major university. Traditionally, they're Christian, mm. right? And he is going to deep dive. So the question that you've just asked is better served for Varun Soni, who you'd love to meet. I'd love to introduce you guys to him. But from my lenses, that there are highly ascribed and thoughtful practices in every one of the world religions. So you've got to train, in other words, mm-hmm. right? So w- what are we training? We're training our mind. Right. Religion is is really about conditioning ourselves, whether it's prayer or meditation, fill in the blank in every religion. There are practices in place to condition yourself to be more clear about the purpose of life. And the, the thread through seems to be love. It seems to be do right, sure. you know, do good. And whether you go to heaven or you're reincarnated or you just end or shot into the cosmos, do right. And if you wow. don't, there's some fear. Now, see, there's some, there's it's some challenges with religion. There. Oh my God! It's hard to get there. I mean, Please. there's so much evil in religion, in in certain parts of the world. It's hard. Well, it's hard to get there. In many of the yeah, religions, people if you get controlled up, by fury. You know, yes, this is the, if you don't do this, you're right. going to hell. Yeah. I want to go back to the fact that you graduated with your MA from Cal State University, and you and then simultaneously earned your PhD. And from there, somehow that segue. I mean, you're the fame and the notoriety that you have uh, that the world knows about is is working with the Seattle Seahawks and doing some of the things that you do. So the. Go from the guy who studied all of these various religions and sort of work your way to your next step. You you have this girlfriend. You've now married her. Was she was she your all t- your only love? Yeah, I mean there was no no other relationship early on that ever compared to it. And so, it, like looking back, it's like if there was any noise in the relationship, there, you know, it's like minor. And so the, we met. I think I was I was 16. And so we we dated a few people here and there, you know, through high school and college, but like there was it was all noise, really. How old were you when you got married? Young. It was right after high, uh, college and so it was like, I guess 24, 25 somewhere in there. And so here here's what happened. I think this is also important. As a licensed psychologist with a specialization in sport and performance and a subspecialty if there's such a thing in rugged and hostile environments. Okay. So I think what people think is that okay, somehow he's got the answers. Well, I know the science, I understand the art, I understand the principles, and I really do understand how complicated becoming one's very best is, especially in hostile environments. But this is what I want to share is that it's a work in progress for everyone. And those ones that you know that are famous for what they do, like Felix Baumgartner, and I have permission to talk about him, you would remember him. He jumped from 130,000 feet, first person to ever do that. It's your GoPro. Yeah. yeah. So that was the Red Bull Stratos yeah. uh, event. Or Kerry Walsh Jennings, four-time Olympian, four-time medalist, three-time gold medalist, best in the world at volleyball ever, certainly from a female perspective to play the game. One of the top sports played in the world, but Americans, we don't really value volleyball as much as we do other sports, similar to football slash soccer you know, internationally. 
they're no different. They are no different than you and I. They have found an attunement between their genetic coding, the environments, and their insatiable drive to figure something out. So I share that for you because there's a story between my master's degree and PhD. So now go back to that graduate school to PhD thing is that at the end of the graduate or my master's program, the dean says, hey, Mike, everyone's turned in their their recommendations for PhD programs, you know, and I don't want to be rude, but, you know, you, is there a reason you didn't ask me for a letter of recommendation, the, the dean of the school? I said, what do you mean? And so it's this flashback, like back to my kitchen with my mom, like I just had better track record at this point. But I thought, I don't know a doctor. No one in my family knows a doctor. That's not what I'm... She said, Mike, four point whatever GPA, you're the number one student in the program. What are you talking about? Put an application together. I'm writing your letter of recommendation. You could go to any school in the world you want to go to, figure it out. You're not stopping here. A la my wife, girlfriend at the time saying, there's more in you. So what is that about? I say that and I share that, not to say that it was this weird thing that happened to me. I believe that that is true for most people that we don't really know what is possible for us. And the community of people around us is really important. So I just, I was fortunate to have some community members, my wife slash girlfriend and this dean and my wife and people that said, there are far more in you. And I've come to understand from watching Coach Carroll, how he works as a head coach of the Seattle Seahawks and building a business with him, that this is one of his most natural gifts. It just so happens to work in the arena of sport is to look deeply into what is possible for another person. Have that idea crisp and clear, share it with them, pull it out of them, hold them to that standard. Once you get their head to nod that that thing might be possible. And that practice is phenomenal. There's weak science around this. Everybody that I know always has quest for three things. Oh boy. Happiness. Success is measured by things that I would never measure success by the things that some people measure success by, which is generally money and family. What's your point of view on those? Yeah, I I think that's super thoughtful because I bet if we walked down the street and we said, what do you really want out of life to, you know, 100 random people or 10 random people? I want to be happy, right? To that thought. I think that that's not quite right. I think that joy and inner peace are are really, you know, a significant piece of the the puzzle. But when I think for myself, I don't want to be just happy. I want to have the capacity to feel all emotions. And so in this conversation, two women and one man, and we have had very different experiences about emotions. We played in different sandboxes. We were taught very different things at an early age. And let's oversimplify emotions for a minute. There's some research that there's seven primary emotions, but let's oversimplify it and say there's four. This is how I needed to learn it. (laughs) Okay. There's fear, sadness, anger, and happiness. Okay. And each one of those four, let's imagine that there's 10 hash marks up and down a scale of one to 10. There's words on the, the top hash mark of anger, which would be rage. And then at the bottom hash mark, and you could fill in any words you really want. The bottom hash mark of anger would be annoyed. Perturbed. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Something small. <laughs> Didn't mean to catch yeah. Well, for some people, annoyed would be middle or whatever. So mm-hmm. this is a good exercise for emotional calibration with loved ones as well. Like what are your hash marks? What are the words you use? So what happens for boys or me, I should say, is that are we allowed to do all happiness? No, we can do about a third to a half of happiness. Too much happiness, that's not okay. You become a weak man if you are bouncing around and and are happy and joyful all the time. Can we do all of fear? No, you can't do even hardly any of it. That is not okay for little boys and, and men to do fear. Can you do sadness? Maybe a little bit at a funeral. That's about it now 
right? We got to pull up our tears when there's deep, you know, emotionally in- engaging things, like whether it's a movie or whatever. We got to pull up. We, we can't show that. And then can we do anger? Yeah, we can do all of it. So we get one full emotion and a little bit of joy and happiness. That's broken. But the point is that I want to feel all of them. <laughs> and I don't know if I speak for like for most men, but I know that this, many of the most extraordinary men that want to become their very best, they know that they need to have the ability to harness their emotions. Because once emotions are on board, there's no controlling emotions. They're too big. The path to becoming better is to get on the razor's edge more often. And people that know what the razor's edge is, they go, oh yeah, that's it. So getting on the razor's edge is where we really learn what we're about. So you can use any example that you want. The razor's edge of physically high consequence environments. When you're at that place where you could die if you make a mistake, Alex Hanold, for example, is one, I think, one of the most significant minds in sport right now. He's a free solo climber, which means he doesn't have clips or harnesses or ropes. He's unbelievable. It's crazy. Just scaled El Capitan, mm-hmm. you know, 3,000 granite, 3,000 foot granite wall, no ropes, no, no safety mechanisms. So if he makes a mistake, he's on the razor's edge. There's an razor's edge of emotion as well. And we've all felt it is that when we start to feel overwhelmed and we pull back instead of feeling all of the razor's edge of joy, all of the razor's edge of sadness or hurt, we pull back or we get frustrated, whatever it is. And so getting on the razor's edge is, I think, the required process to creating space, internal space and freedom to be able to play more often. And so it literally is the inoculation for tension, but it's hard. I've so- never had a better experience than whitewater kayaking down a river, class five rapids, knowing I could die. There you go. I've never felt joy when I've gotten to the side and I've burst into tears. It was like, wow, the grit, the commitment, the courage, just all of that that comes up from being on that edge. Now you make a living coaching and helping sports teams and part of your living, I should say, comes from that. Where did that begin? How did that start for you? Who was your first client? It was a hockey player and it was based on the trust of a physician and a strength coach that was this, uh, what's up, Ken Vick, <laughs> you know, that, that, that trusted me. And he said, Hey, uh, there's this athlete, there's a pro athlete I want you to sit across from. And I was brand new, wet behind the ears, just finishing up my master's degree. And, you know, I, somebody trusted me. Now, that being said, I also had just graduating college, I set up a non uh, No, I didn't set it up. I had a part-time temporary job. So part of this story that I'm sharing with you guys is that I didn't have this idea that I ever wanted to work with world's best. That still is not what I'm about. It just so happens that the nuances of mastery is that's where it happens. So I'm graduating my, ma- my right. undergraduate degree, part-time temporary job. A mentor says, Mike, you know, when you're trying to figure out what you're going to do next, by the way, I went to uh, Pepperdine University, which is a traditional psychology program, dropped out after a semester and a half because I didn't want to study the psychology of broken and uh, the medical model didn't fit for me. And so back to your point, my parents at that point were like, oh, we thought we had one, <laughs> you know, but, but that's not how it worked. And so part-time temporary job, they were sitting on a large grant for delinquency prevention, alcohol, drug prevention. And it was only meant to be two weeks. And I said to the executive director, I said, hey, if I come up with an idea, do you think you guys would fund it? And she said, well, if it's a good idea, <laughs> maybe. So the idea was every Saturday night, rent a gym, three full basketball courts, 
between the hours of 8 and midnight, 8 p.m. and midnight. We'll get a DJ. We'll bring in local athletes. I'll mentor the local athletes to be the leaders of this organization. We'll open the gym up for anybody in the community who wants to come. And what ended up happening, it was an 18-year experience for me. So it went from a part-time temporary job for 18 years. That was part of my, my woodshed. And so every Saturday night, the only cost to admission was, and there was about 120 men, young men every night from the bottoms of Los Angeles. You know, it was r- certainly one of the toughest environments I've been in because it was gang involved. It was gang associated. It was straight from the yeah. centers. We had in out, okay, 18 years, every Saturday night, only three fist fights. Yes. 16 to 25 year old men in Los Angeles, three fist fights. Wow. One of them was a pro athlete that came in. A second one was a young man that I ended up having a, an amazing mentorship based relationship with. And the third one was a man who beat up four women uh, in the, in the gym. And so two of them, I think like that's almost lost causes. Like I wasn't going to be able to help them, but we could, I could go on and on and on about this experience. But what I did every Saturday night, there was no bars for me. (laughs) I saved a lot of money, (laughs) probably had a better relationship with my wife for it as well, because we weren't out doing that. I was in a sweaty gym figuring out my craft. The only price to admission was for these young men to listen to me work out in five or seven minutes a mindset principle that I was fascinated by, a psychology principle that I was fascinated by. So I learned how to express as quickly as I can the heart of a psychological principle to an audience that was not interested in listening. You went to that teacher or the person that sat on top of this pile of money and you pitched this idea to them. Yeah. And they said, yes, that's a good idea. I'm, we're going to support that. And for you, it was a learning experience and it helped you to craft your point of view that you had on helping these type of people to focus themselves to have yeah. a more productive life. Yeah. Uh, close with just one small pivot, which is that my aim was not necessarily to help that group of people. It, well, it happened sounds to, like it was more about you. Well, and not in a narcissistic way. No, no, it's not at all. Like, just to hone your craft. Yeah. Like yeah. what ends up happening is that, yes, lives changed. And there's amazing testament from that. It was actually the focus of my PhD, my dissertation. And so I studied it. There's five, if you, if you came to that gym for six or more times, six or more nights in a row, there was a significant decrease in alcohol and drug use for the participants, a significant increase in the ability to resolve conflict, uh, increase in confidence, increase in ability to set goals, increase in ability to perform better under pressure. Those are amazing life skills. So what, what, but what I worked out in there was how to get to the core of something. So when I met this strength coach and physician that worked in in pro sport, they're like, oh, well, this guy knows how to get to the center of things. It's not all this psychobabble bullshit. And he goes, it's like, there's no frills to it right to the center. There's no esoterics, you know, words. It's like, how do you train your mind? This is what I want you to do today. What I would say to the young men in the next three hours that we're going to play ball, this is the one skill I want you to work on. And when we get to a place we're about to fight, we're going to use that skill. You're not good at it yet, and we're going to use that skill. So every yeah. night, every Saturday night, there was right. a, a psychological principle we would work on developing. And, and would you express that to them at the beginning of that the was, evening? Yeah, sorry, I'm not really clear. That was the price to entry is that we, we would have 100 young men at like 8.30, gather up, and then I would have 15 minutes that would turn into seven mm-hmm. <laughs> because the attention span right. and my ability like to – Yeah, right. <laughs> so seven minutes of me delivering in a sweaty hot box with alpha competitive young men, a mindset principle, a, a psychological principle. 
And every week do. was the different one. Yeah. So they, I mean, there's not, you know, thousands of principles, yeah, you know, so we would wrap back around, you know, so and, they would come there. They would, you would, they would listen to you and gain, glean something from what you were saying, hopefully, theoretically. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then they would go about their business of competing, mm-hmm. you know, going against one another. And in all of that time, mm-hmm. only three sets of arguments. Fistfights. That's, That's right. stunning. One of the greatest gifts that I got in return was a young man came back. He was gone for maybe two years. And he came back and he said, you know, I got to tell you, Mike, this program, because of who I was, he said, it saved a lot of other people's lives. That has been part of his past, but he, he changed his way. So mm-hmm. I'm like, oh my goodness. So it saddens me that I'm, that program is no longer alive. And it was a funding issue. It was a timing thing. And the curriculum is baked. At some point, I'm ready to dust it off and, and bring it back alive. So go back to the hockey player, because that Mm -hmm. was the pivot for you to start to work with elite athletes. So we skipped that story. Can we go back to that story? Sure. So I didn't know what I was doing. Right. (laughs) But I had some knowledge, you know, some knowledge, I should say, about how sports psychology works, theory, you know, kind of. And what I did have was the ability to understand based on all the time I've been the sweaty box, all the time I'd spent scaring myself in surfing or action sports. I did have an intuitive understanding of what it takes to be on the razor's edge. And so we start, we started there. You know, what's it like to be on the razor's edge for you? And so I'm not built to like take time to figure things out. I want to get right to the center of what is it like for you when it's hard? Where are you going in your life? Because I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't I didn't have a vision in my life. So other people in my life had dropped these seeds in. Hey, there's more in you. It could look like this. Hey, there's more in you. It's what Coach Carroll does in a world-class way. So then I'm doing what I needed, right? And there's not a whole lot of science about this part, but this is a beautiful part of relationships. When you think about your most significant relationships, I think you would say, I don't know what it is, but somehow being around him or her, I just feel like I'm just more me. Just the best part of me comes out. They challenge me. They love me. They support and challenge in that order, you know, in that order. And so, so that's what I'm doing with this, with this athlete. Eventually that led to another athlete, another athlete, another athlete, right? Like that's organically how things happen. Do high performing athletes have similarities? The tip of the arrow across multiple domains are more similar than dissimilar. So the the best wealth manager is more similar to the best basketball player. That's the tip of the arrow. That you're, you're suggesting, if I understand you correctly, that the personality traits that are that reside in both have similarities, yeah. regardless of the industry that they're in. But just the tip of the arrow. Mm-hmm. The other 95% in the elite world, there's more variance there. And so the world-class CEO is very similar to a world-class professional, whatever, you know, athletic or artist. There's a little bit of toggling between artists and, and executives and athletes. Like there's a little bit more of a sensitivity to artists for the most part. All that being said, they're more similar than dissimilar. And how so? What would you say the main characteristics are that sort of flow at that tip of the arrow? I think we make a mistake when we put them on a pedestal for what they've done. I think what the true learning is from the best of the best of the best, and I'm talking about the half percenters, right, is that they fundamentally organize their life to get better. That's what it's about. And there are exceptions to every rule. So when I say they, I, I, in my mind, I've got people that eat hamburgers and are still can jump out of a, a gym. You know, it's like crazy how they do it. But for the most part, what the best in the world do is they organize their life to have accurate feedback loops so that they can pivot quickly. They can adjust fast. They can learn and get better. So that's one. When you use the word better, you're talking about better at their chosen craft. Yeah. Yes. At their skill set. Yeah. And I'm not thinking that the best in the world are balanced. 
by any means. I think balance is a mythical ridgeline that has plagued so many of us thinking that we need balance in life. And I don't think it exists. I don't know anyone that has balance. Many of these athletes have peak performance for an abbreviated amount of time in their life. Have you been able to or have you had reason to deal with the end of that career and their, you know, who am I now? Yeah, it's hard. 87% of athletes in the NFL within two years of leaving the league are broke, divorced, really struggling in their life. That's an extraordinarily high number. The texture to try to explain that is rough. One of the easy threads is that at an early age, when somebody is good at something, they foreclose their identity and they say, I'm an athlete. I am a musician. I am a whatever. So they foreclose their identity on everything else. When their job, our job from the ages 12 to 18 is to figure out, to explore as many different parts of us as we can. Because as we start getting older, the the exploration tends to narrow and we choose one or two lanes to start to invest in. So when you foreclose too early, there becomes a miring or a um, fusing of identity with craft at the point where growth begins to slow down, at the point where the, the body catches up, at the point where it becomes overwhelming in the mind that I have to do something because it feels like a life or death experience when it's really not, it's just another tennis match, that what ends up taking place for people is that identity and craft are, are fused. And the work later on for the healthy transition is to pull apart or decouple identity, who am I, from craft, what I do. And the clear that separation between the two, the what you do never threatens the who you are. So what happens for the best of the best of the best is that they have fused what they are with who they are. And so when they leave the what they do, you know, the professional ranks, they don't know who they are because it's a real death. The amazing thing about the brain is that there are no redundancies. So the same part of the brain that is responsible for figuring out death is the same activated regions, if you will, for loss. So what ends up happening is that at the end of the career, there's a loss. There's a grand loss and it feels like death. Death to what? Identity really is what's, you know, who am I? It's also popularity. Right. I had a, a conversation with a Super Bowl champion. It says, I knew my relationship was in trouble when I said to my wife, how are you going to give me the love of 100,000 screaming fans? And this, was, this conversation was not recent. This was like 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. So then when you go to the grocery store and the clerk asks you for your ID, there's a death again. And when you're at Starbucks and somebody asks you for, you know, like, can I have your name for your cup? Where Interesting. six months ago, 18 months ago, everybody knew you. They wanted your autograph. You Are know, you so. doing work in this area for mm, athletes? No, I'm, I'm not spending enough time here because the, you know, the, the bucket is full, if you will. But there's right. a real need for this. And the leagues are doing a pretty good job you know, on transition. They at least uh, know that it's a box that needs to be checked. But it is, it is sad to see. It really dovetails off of what you just said. I mean, they're so young and they went from the pinnacle to just being Mr. Joe Average. And... Um, I'd be fascinated to see in the work that you do now, you know, as you know that this guy is at the last year of their contract and you know the next year he's not going to be back. Is there counseling or um, advice that you get involved in? I know you're not working with them afterwards, but in that last moments in time, do you spend time with them? Yeah. Well, we try to get ahead of it the best we can and to work on that decoupling to create more space, more freedom, 
um, more exploratory space early in their career. So it's, let's say it's the last year of their career. They're hanging on for dear life. They don't want to think about next. <laughs> they want another contract. And they've been they've been popular since they were ten or eleven mm. because that's how boys set you know handle things. They they're good on the schoolyard, you know, so they become popular. And now they they're twenty four, so they've been seventy mm. percent of their life has been spent being well liked. From a science perspective, we know that athletes tend to overestimate their skills and abilities. So that sounds a little bit like confidence, right? But they overestimate their abilities to stay in the league as well. And they've defied all the odds from wherever they came up. Who's supposed to be the one best out of 7 billion people, you know, or however many people play your sport? That's not, that's not supposed to happen, but they did it. So getting a third contract is a big deal in any professional ranks. And of course, they're going to get a third one. Until someone says no. <laughs> so that, it, it, they, they get kicked out of the party. And so you, they'd have to kick me out too. You did know? you and Pete, when you guys were working with the Seahawks, is that part of his gift to the team and you working with them, helping them in the moment deal with some of those things? Coach Carroll's approach is a relationship-based approach. So it's not an outcome-focused approach. So the organization produces extraordinary football, but it starts with knowing yourself so that you can know others so that we can lock arms and do difficult things together. Because what happens to most people when they are in the face of difficult things, they, they fray. They unlock their arms and they save their own ass. So we are a relationship-based approach in the way that the organizations run. And one of the practices is to ask every coach, athletes included in this process, what is your philosophy? Who am I? What are your guiding principles? And those ought to, if done correctly, outlast football. So there's like the seed that we put in place. So, and it's a business, it's hard, you know, it's fast paced and there's high stakes and high performance standards. And we don't get to spend time with everybody that we love because not everyone continues to make the team, but we give them that as part of the process. So it is hopefully an inoculation to help them get to that 13% or expand that 13% of people that do really well after transition. For you, I would imagine you've probably experienced a lot of losses as well that have to have been difficult for you. I mean, kid doesn't show back up the next year that you bonded with the prior year. There's no goodbye. There's no goodbye. It is. How do you deal with that? I I don't know. It's hard. It has to be hard. (laughs) You know, so you do, of course you call, you know, of course, you, you know, but there's this idea for all of us. This isn't just me and pro sports, right? There's an idea for all of us and it'll happen today when, when we say goodbye. There's an assumption that we'll see each other later. We'll see each other again. Right. The truth is we might not. So you spend your time now doing the work with the Seattle Seahawks. Do you work with other high-performing athletes on a regular basis? I know you have some very well-known one-offs, but do you have other areas in this space that you're working on on a regular basis as well? Yeah. So the way that I've structured my professional career is I've got three working laboratories. One working laboratory is a concierge boutique, high touch performance psychology experience in Los Angeles. So people come in, I only have two clients a month, one, maybe two clients a month where they come in, we roll up our sleeves for eight hours on one day because travel is an, an issue for us. And by the end of that eight hours, we are exhausted. We've gotten to the heart of who the person is. Deep insight has taken place. And there's a clear training program that we put in place for training the mind for the rest of the 29 days. So it's a monthly contract. That's just for me to stay connected to the, to the craft. 
okay, at an intimate deep level, one or two people a month, maybe, um, maybe two is what I'm saying. So that's one working laboratory. The second working laboratory is working with professional organizations. And so Seattle Seahawks is the one now. And those environments need to be, for me, rugged and have some real stuff on the line where there's consequences are part of the embedded assumption of rules. And then the third is uh, Coach Carol and I actually built a business together, which is taking his insights, my insights, his are on how to shape a culture for people to become their best. And my insights are about how to train the mind for people who want to be their best. We put those two together. We scratch on the back of a napkin, you know, how we were doing what we're doing. And we formalize that into essentially an eight-hour training curriculum that we've got Olympians and sports psychologists that uh, are delivering that eight-hour curriculum. And now we've just moved to an online experience for enterprise businesses. They can go through a four-week or 12-week course of how to condition and train the mind to be your very best. And so, so those are the three working environments. And then finding mastery is part of that middle bucket, You know, working with extraordinary people and events. And one of the projects I'm working on right now, which falls into that middle bucket, the Seahawks tight bucket, is there's a woman, Leah Ditton, who is rowing or planning, um, preparing to row from Japan to San Francisco solo, no guide boat, no trail boat, her, her oars and mother nature. It's four to six months, depending on if she gets lost or swept into some currents, no support, probably the most dangerous project. And you know, the last one that I just came off was, was helping a gentleman, Luke Aikens jump from an airplane at 30,000 feet without a parachute into a net, a 16 story net that he and his team built. So you make a mistake there and consequences are real. So when I talk about the razor's edge, if it's not real, it's not real. So the psycho mumbo jumbo about things that are invisible, which I'm fascinated by makes me crazy. Let's make it real, you know? And so we can really see how our mind works. And you guys know this when you're around somebody that is alive and animated, like we talked about earlier, you feel it, you know it. And so that's because they've conditioned their mind in some way. How's the business working from um, corporate enterprise? Feels like, like we accidentally, you know, stepped on a lion's tail and we said, Oh my God, we both grabbed onto it and the lion took off running. And so we're climbing up Fantastic. to the hind quarter of, of the, the lion. It's amazing. Like over the last two years, Satya Nadella just wrote his book. He's the CEO of Microsoft. Just wrote his book, Hit Refresh. Page four, five, and six is our work with him on reshaping and helping him influence his culture, which is like this extraordinary, like, thank Congrats. you. Like, it's Fantastic. A, so the last two years, we've done 240,000 human hours of mindset training. I want to say about your podcast, because it's really important for me to say this, that when I landed on your podcast and have listened to your interviews in FindingMastery.com, I'm overwhelmed by the similarities that these people exhibit. And I'm just overwhelmed by the amount of insight that you get from them and what you get them to tell you in a very subtle and not hostile way. And to find the similarities that these incredibly successful people have done. So I absolutely love your podcast. And I'm super happy you're doing it because I drive to Malibu all the time and I spend my days with you. Yeah. <laughs> going fun? back and yeah, forth. I, listen awesome. to you. I can get two in in a trip if I'm, if I yeah, really, yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, if I don't get too many phone calls on the way out, I can get two in in a trip. Thank you for that. I mean, that's really, I, I, f- I feel grateful that you, um, that you've been finding joy and meaning in it. And thank you. And you it's happy? findingmastery.net. Finding Mastery. Yeah, it's easy. To all of the people that will listen to this podcast, you should absolutely listen to your podcast too. It's thank super you. interesting. I'm mindful to say to hear that and say thank you. And then I want to share a compliment, but then I've got this other voice in the back of my head like, don't be all sappy now, you know, with each other. But you know, like this so oh, this experience. So I'm on I'm on your podcast as a guest. 
and you guys have created enough space for me to just go <laughs> like, you know, I'm just going. So thank you for creating the space for me to just share. And I, I hope that I've gotten to some insights that are some good takeaways for folks because I've, I, I really value the concreteness of things. And I'm afraid that in this conversation, it's been a little bit more about my journey and less about takeaways, but my hope underneath of that, you don't have to have it all together, mm. right? Like there's but I'm been, in, that's what I'm interested in is your yep. journey, right? I mean, yep. you're such an interesting guy. Mm. And Thank to you. see the work that you're doing and the way that you touch people. It's really interesting. I mean, people feel safe with you. I want to thank you for coming. I really thank do. You. Thank you very, very much. It's been a pleasure having you in our theater today. Yes, thank so, you so much. Thank it you, was Michael. fantastic. You guys are great. Thank you. Next on Say It Forward, you could say Felicity Huffman is a great actress, whether on stage, in films, or on television. But that wouldn't be doing her justice, because she's earned a boatload of nominations and awards from the Screen Actors Guild, the Emmys, the Golden Globes, and the Academy Awards, just to name a few. You may know her best as Lynette from the long-running TV series Desperate Housewives. But before landing that starring role, she guest-starred in many of your favorite TV series like The X-Files, Law & Order, Sports Night, Frasier, and Chicago Hope, as well as appearing in films such as Transamerica, Rudderless, Cake, and Magnolia. How did a girl from rural New York State reach the top of her profession? We'll find out as we rewind to the beginning with Felicity Huffman on the next Say It Forward. Thanks for listening to Say It Forward. Help us grow by subscribing to our podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes or at www.sayitforwardpodcast.com. Don't forget to rate and review us on the iTunes store or like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. 